This is from Romans 2, verses 12 through 29. Hear the word of the Lord. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who have who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you were instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word, Lord. Um, Thank you for speaking to us directly by it. Um, And thank you for Brandon just sharing what you have shared with him this week in preparation for today. And I pray that um, that his words would be diminished and your words would be what we hear and what changes us and what shapes our lives today and every day. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. <coughs> Thank you, Erica. This morning, we're resuming our journey through the book of Romans in our message series that is entitled, Not Ashamed. So far, we've seen the Apostle Paul paint kind of a bleak picture of our sin nature and we have received his assurance that all of us, believers and non-believers alike, will in fact face judgment one day. And Paul isn't quite ready yet to leave this part of his teaching and move on to redemption. If you're like me, whenever you encounter scripture that is kind of heavy about sin and you know the impending day of judgment, it stirs up within you Uh, doubts and uncertainty about your salvation. So we want to be assured that our salvation is real. And and in desperation, we tend to cling to things that remind us of our connections with God. 
I think this is why uh, Paul wrote to the Philippian church uh, in Philippians chapter 2. He says, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but more so in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure." Now, when Paul says here that we should work out our own salvation, he's not saying that we need to manufacture it, that he's not saying that we we should work to create our own salvation. Work out means to kind of consider it, to come to a deeper understanding of it, to look at it and examine it uh, truly from every angle. And Paul is pointing out that when we do that, we will find that it is God who is doing the work in us. So Paul's exhortation is that when the people of the church are apart from him, that is when they're not being like constantly taught and reminded of the gospel, it's important that they continue the work of comprehending the gospel on their own coming face to face with the kind of sobering and sometimes terrifying reality of the destructiveness of our sin and so that we don't forget where it is that our salvation comes from. And our passage of Scripture in Romans this morning, I feel like it's a little bit of this working out of our salvation with kind of a fear and a trembling attached Paul is helping the people in the church of Rome see their tendencies to put faith in things that are good things, but are not the whole gospel. And our task this morning is to see how the kind of the struggle of the Romans uh, to comprehend their salvation can be of use to us in our own struggle, in our own lives. Now, Paul is writing to a church that at the time was located in the capital city of the great Roman Empire. And because of this, there were lots of different kinds of people in this bustling metropolis, and his audience is a mix of Christians. Some are Jewish converts, and some are Gentiles who have no Jewish background. In fact, the word Gentile just kind of means not Jewish. People who grew up Jewish, they were raised with with this understanding that they were special, that they were unique. See, God created the Jewish race. He, He set apart the descendants of Abraham, and he called them his chosen people. They were the people of his covenant. And one of the ways that God set them apart was through the sign and seal of his covenant, which was the practice of circumcision. So if you were a Jewish male, you were circumcised as an infant on your eighth day of life, they would circumcise you. And if you converted to Judaism as an adult, well, you were circumcised at that time. Just imagine those member interviews. (laughs) Another way that God set them apart was by entrusting his revealed word to Moses. 
who was a descendant of Abraham. And this is commonly thought of as the law. And it was to various Jewish prophets that God revealed even more truth. And until the time of Jesus, the law and the prophets, what we would call the Old Testament, this was the entirety of God's revelation of how to live as a follower of God. These were sacred truths, and they were treasured, and they were preserved even supernaturally through the Jewish people. And no other race of people had any revelation from the one true God. In fact, they worshiped false pagan gods. I think that Jewish people were understandably proud to be God's chosen people. They were proud of their Jewish heritage in general. They looked down on people who were not circumcised. And they were critical of other cultures that did not live according to the law of God, who did not follow the one true God. And so as Paul began to bring non-Jewish people into the early days of the Christian church, this did create no small amount of confusion. Who exactly were the descendants of Abraham? To whom did the law of God apply? And how important is this rite of circumcision? See, when Jesus came onto the scene, he did not replace the tenets of Judaism with his own new creation, his own new religion. Jesus said in Matthew 5, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And part of what Paul is doing in this passage is he's, he's laying the groundwork for unity within the church. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. We are all in need of salvation apart from the law. And circumcised and uncircumcised alike are all now united in the same baptism. And Paul does this by attempting to kind of dismantle some common misconceptions that Jewish believers in his day held about what it meant to be the chosen people of the one true God. Now, very few of us here today are of Jewish heritage, but don't let that trouble you because I believe that as we unpack this text, we will discover some very universal truths that can help us as Gentiles better comprehend our own salvation. And here is kind of how I'm proposing that we proceed. First, I want to look at these misconceptions that Paul brings up. And then we'll look at three ways to properly kind of align our conception of them with the truth of the gospel. So let's go ahead and get started. Misconception one is this, that we are saved by obedience to the law. Paul actually takes on this misconception from both the Jewish and the Gentile perspective. In Romans 2.12, he says this, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Jews and Gentiles alike are faced with the same wrath and the same judgment of God. 
Now, Gentiles, they may be thinking that they might escape God's wrath because they have a good excuse. I didn't know what the rules were, so how can you hold me responsible for breaking them? Well, there's a legal principle uh, out there, and uh, it's in Latin. I'll try to read it. It's called ignorantia juris non accusat. And what this means is ignorance of the law is no excuse. If you travel to another state or another country, you are expected to familiarize yourself with the local laws. And if you inadvertently break a law in in that place, they may not show you leniency simply because you say, hey, I'm not from around here. And this is a similar argument to what Paul is making, but he's actually going on to show that ignorance is not actually a factor. Romans 2, 14 and 15, he says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, and their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. He's pointing out that even though the Gentiles were not given the law in a written form, there is evidence that they have some inherent spiritual understanding of right and wrong, because they, by nature, do what the law requires. He says that the, the law is actually written on their hearts and that their conscience reveals their understanding of it. If the world was truly governed by natural tendencies, um, survival of the fittest would kind of be the law of the land, wouldn't it? Why, why would it be wrong for someone who is stronger, smarter, or more vicious to take advantage of someone who is weaker, less intelligent, or timid. Indeed, a good argument could be made that it would be better for the human race to eliminate the weaker people and thus make society that much stronger. And yet, that is not what we see people doing by nature. We see in every civilization, even those that are not shaped by a Christian worldview, we see that they have an understanding that Stealing what is not yours is wrong. That killing people is wrong. That protecting the innocent is right and noble. And that telling the truth is preferred to telling falsehood. You see, our human conscience sets us apart from just the instincts of the animals. It's part of how we reflect the very image of God. And in one way, this is really good because this is God's common grace. He's restraining the evil in the world. If he, if he was not doing this, then we would live in a, a state of utter depravity where we would only do all evil all the time. But in another way, it's really bad news because it really means that we have no excuse. Because when we violate our own conscience and we do the wrong thing, it means that we are consciously breaking God's law. And Paul compares and contrasts this with the Jews. That's not to say Jews don't have a conscience, they do. 
but they also were given the written law through Moses and the prophets. And the Jews of that day, they had this tendency to kind of pity the lawless Gentiles. How will they ever know what to do to be saved? But Paul is saying here that the law isn't the solution that they think it is. Romans 2.13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. So what if you have the law? So what if you hear it read every Saturday in synagogue? So what if you've studied and memorized it every day of your whole life? So what? Only those who do the law will be justified. Because if you know the law and then break it, you are just as guilty as those lawless people who break the law in ignorance. James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in even one point is guilty of all of it. And we'll see next week that every Jew who ever lived, with one exception, has indeed broken the law in at least one point. Paul goes on to point out the hypocrisy of those who teach the law as if they don't break it themselves. Those Jews who belittle Gentiles because they break God's law, they're called to account in Romans 2, 23 and 24. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul is pointing out that, that the Jews who were hypocritical, they, were, they dishonored God's name by pretending to be holier than thou while holding the Gentiles to a standard that they themselves were not even keeping. And now church, I know that it's difficult for most of us not, not to put ourselves in the place of the Gentiles as we read about this passage, as we think about what this passage has for us today. But I don't want you to miss this warning from Paul. Because see, we're the ones who have the word now. We, we have the word in a more fuller revelation than the Jews of Paul's day ever did. And we must be careful not to dishonor the name of God by hypocritically pointing to the world around us and accusing them of violating God's law, even as we do the exact same things. Church, that, that has never brought anyone into the light. What it does is it tarnishes the name and reputation of God. We're not to boast in our own righteousness, but only in the perfect work of Jesus Christ. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself because we have another misconception to look at. We're saved by our affiliations. Paul says an interesting thing, I think, in Romans 2, 17. He says, if you call yourself a Jew, if you call yourself a Jew, see, in the early days of the church, I think it was difficult for Jewish converts to let go of their cultural identity. If you were Jewish, it was, it was always understood that you were one of the chosen people. 
And I understand that. I think I understand this phenomenon a little bit. I'm not Jewish, but my wife and my daughters are. Alicia didn't grow up in a practicing Jewish household or anything like that, but she did have a Jewish grandmother who was of great influence in her early life. And so when we as a family read the scriptures and and we read the history of Jewish people, we, we remember that this is a part of their heritage. And we feel a connection to it as a family that is special. I have a similar connection uh, in my Scottish heritage. I didn't grow up in a Scottish culture, but when I read about the origins of the Presbyterian Church, I, I can't help but feel a personal connection to that aspect of the kingdom of God. And I'm sharing this because I, I want to be clear that whatever your heritage, there's nothing wrong with a kind of healthy amount of pride in who you are and where you come from. That's a part of your story. It's a part of your history. And I don't think that, that Paul, who was himself a Jew, intended to give anyone the idea that we should not love and embrace our cultural heritage. And yet... For the Jews in the, in the early days of the church, there was a particular pitfall that needed to be addressed. See, some Jews were believing that their genetics alone were enough to entitle them to salvation. They were very focused. They were overly concerned with being able to trace their personal lineage back to Abraham. Remember that time when Jesus was talking with a group of Jewish people, and he was kind of verbally sparring with them about this very issue. We see it in John 8, starting in verse 38. Jesus says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we're not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Whew. Man, Jesus let him have it, right? But here's the thing. I don't think it was because he was angry with them. I think it was because he needed them to see that he was the way to the Father. Not Abraham. He needed them to understand that putting their faith in their ethnic heritage was a path to hell. Now again, I think that it's easy for us as Gentiles to just kind of pass over this and think, well, this isn't really relevant to me. But I think we're just as capable of putting our faith in our affiliations as the Jews were in their parentage. And if I could just be blunt with you for just one moment, some of you put way 
too much weight on the fact that you are PCA. Some of you put way too much weight on the fact that you're Presbyterian or that you're Reformed. This is not too far off from those misguided folks who think that they're Christian just because their parents are or their grandparents were. On the day of judgment, it will not matter one bit which church you attended or which doctrines you defended. All that will matter is whether or not you knew Jesus Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There I go again, getting ahead of myself. We've got one more misconception to look at. This one, misconception three, we are saved by rituals. Paul spent a moment in our passage undressing or addressing the value of the practice of circumcision. In verse 25, he says, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. See, in the early days of the church, circumcision, it was one of those confusing things. It's addressed a few different places in Scripture. See, the circumcision had always been the sign and seal of the covenant, and Jewish converts, they still valued it greatly. And we know that Jesus replaced this sign a blood sign with a water sign. He replaced it with baptism. And so some Jews were like, well, I guess I'll just do both. And then some tried to insist that the Gentiles needed to do both. And I think maybe for a season, it was just inevitable that this confusion would exist. Maybe it just took a while growing pains in the church until the covenant became better understood and we moved past this. But at this passage in in Romans, Paul's not really addressing like, hey, there's been a change of ritual. What he's trying to get at is the heart of the matter, that the ritual is an outward sign of an inward reality, that that the sign is not the thing that it signifies. He said it like this in verse 29, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. See, some Jews were under this mistaken impression that simply because they had undergone the ritual of circumcision, that this meant that their salvation was assured. This is similar to what Catholics and Lutherans teach about the sacrament of baptism. But the sacrament of circumcision that we saw in Old Testament times and the sacrament of baptism that we see nowadays, these are only a sign and seal of the covenant. Those who receive the sign are brought under the covenant, but not all who receive the sign will truly come to a saving faith. And we see this in Scripture. 
Look at Jacob and Esau. They were t- two twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. They were, they were both circumcised as infants on their eighth day. They were brought under the covenant. Both were sinners who failed to keep God's laws. Jacob, though, had faith, and he believed in God. Esau did not have faith, and he did not follow God. Jacob was a covenant keeper, and Esau was a covenant breaker. The ritual of the sacrament is important, and it's special, and it's meaningful. It's a means of grace. But ultimately, it's our faith in God to keep his promise of the covenant through Jesus Christ that determines if we are within the covenant family or not. It is not our actions or the actions of our parents that save us, but faith in Jesus Christ alone. Yet again, I think there's application for us Gentiles First, we should not believe that we're saved simply because we've been baptized. It's the inward that matters, not the outward. But beyond the sacraments, I think there's other rituals that we sometimes tend to put our faith in. For example, many of us can remember that time when we said the sinner's prayer, when we recited some words and asked Jesus to come and live in our hearts. Or maybe we walk down an aisle during a church service or at a retreat. Or maybe we raised our hand, right, when every eye was closed and every head was bowed. And I don't want to diminish the beauty of that moment in your story. And I'm not saying that it it wasn't meaningful. But the, the act of saying a prayer earns us nothing. Only the faith of belief in Jesus Christ accompanying that prayer has any effect. Does that make sense? Saying this prayer, (coughs) excuse me, saying this prayer, it's a great bit of outward evidence that something is happening on the inside, but it is not a replacement in and of itself for saving faith. So I think that Paul has given us a lot to wrestle with, right? As we work out our own salvation. And the fear and trembling, I think, comes along as we realize that we're not gonna be saved because of who our parents are. We're not gonna be saved whether or not we truly have read God's word or even based on our works of embracing the gospel through the sacraments. But as we focus on how God is working in our lives, as we look for the evidence of the Holy Spirit, that he's alive and active in us, then we can have a sense of the assurance of our salvation. And so I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I think it's important that we take a moment to consider kind of the proper way of looking at these misconceptions as much as they point us to who truly saves, Jesus, they're of great benefit to us. So the first counterpoint is this. We should love the law. Psalm 119, 97, it says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. 
Paul wants us to understand clearly that the the law is powerless to save us. And yet the law is given to us as a gift. And it is through the law that we see our desperate need for the Savior, Jesus. But it's also through the law that we see the evidence of that salvation at work in our lives. 1 John 5 says this, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Lamentations 3.40 tells us that we should test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. So as we're working out our salvation, we'll see how we continue to need Jesus as we fall short of the standards that we encounter in Scripture. And yet we'll also see how we begin to overcome the world as his gospel works in our heart and as we're conformed more and more into the image of our Savior. Counterpoint two is that there is an affiliation that truly matters. Paul is careful here in Romans to explain that Jewish heritage has no value in determining who is and is not saved. And yet the fact remains that the language of the covenant promise specifically mentions the offspring of Abraham. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul clarifies that the heirs of Abraham are not determined by genetics, but through the covenant promise. As the song goes, Father Abraham had many sons, but truly what matters is that we're all sons and daughters of God. We're brothers and sisters of Jesus, and we're justified by faith. Galatians 3.23 says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So when you're considering your salvation and and you feel that fear and and trembling coming in as the depth of your sinfulness and the height of God's holiness come into view and you realize that there is this huge gap between them, this huge chasm between them, take hold of this truth. You are no longer a captive of that sin. You are justified by your faith in Jesus. And what it means is that Jesus stretched out his hands on that cross and bridged that chasm between your sin and God's holiness, and he brought you together into 
the family of God, adopted. And this is the affiliation that truly matters. The third counterpoint is this. Rituals are helpful. While the act of the sacrament itself is merely symbolic, the inward work of the Holy Spirit is very real for those who believe. Indeed, there's many rituals, right, that, that we have in the Christian faith that are beneficial to us. The theological term for these rituals is means of grace. These are behaviors that we can engage in through which the Holy Spirit will impart Jesus' grace to us. The sacraments of baptism and the Lord's table, which we'll take in a moment, these are means of grace. We're not just eating and drinking things. Uh, the Holy Spirit is meeting us in that moment, ministering to us. Prayer is another means of grace. Prayer is not just having a conversation with Jesus like he's our friend. It's not just us speaking words and hearing nothing or speaking words and, and reading what we see in Scripture. Prayer is our spirit in communion with his Holy Spirit. Grace is being brought to us in prayer. Reading the word and hearing it preached is another means of grace. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. When we engage with his word, the Holy Spirit is at work within us, increasing our faith. Even now, as you hear me preaching the word of God, the Holy Spirit is working in you. And this is not even to mention that the wisdom that we can glean from Scripture is the best guide to life that we could hope for. There's arguably other means of grace, such as fellowshipping with other believers, or fasting, times of solitude, things like this. Church, Paul gives us a good warning in this passage of Scripture that, that it is the spirit, not the letter of the law, that matters. We don't want to neglect the law. We don't want to neglect our Christian family. We don't want to neglect the means of grace. But we do want to keep our eyes on Jesus as we work out our fear, our salvation with fear and trembling. That's how we abide in him. And that's where the assurance of our salvation is found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you that you love us, that you care for us, that you have given us these great things, your word, a family, sacraments and means of grace. And yet all of it, Lord, is only of value because it's about Jesus. And we need more Jesus. Lord, we pray that your spirit would fill us this week as we work out our salvation, as we consider what it means that you have saved us and continue to sanctify us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace 
to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.